Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. What life choices, if any, have you had to make due to the monkeypox outbreak? I think that's a, a very loaded question. It definitely impacts my readiness to be like really social. My sex life have definitely changed. It definitely started with ensuring that I had access to the vaccine. That's the first line of defense. I am a black gay man and a, a single one. So, you know, I'm not in a partnership where I have certain agreements around um, my potential exposure and my uh, sexual behaviors. Definitely reducing my going to places like leather bars or nightclubs or things like that. I feel like I have to like push back virulently against the stigmas associated with, you know, being like a member of like a sexual minority group, especially the one that's centralized in this conversation. This is the United States of Anxiety. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. Those voices you just heard are from a listening session we held with a group of LGBT community leaders in the metro Atlanta area who work in public health. Because as we started thinking about monkeypox this week, we wanted to hear from this unique group of people, experts in public health, but who come at that work as people inside the community most affected by monkeypox right now. And quite honestly, as a queer man in New York City, I certainly have a very personal stake in this conversation as well. We've been a geographic epicenter of this outbreak, and it has been scary and confusing and ultimately enraging, honestly. After all we've been through with COVID, here's another outbreak in which I'm forced to scramble around trying to understand what my risk really is, how I get tested if I've been exposed, and entering this just truly insane competition to get a vaccine appointment. How can all this be? after all we've been through over the past three years. The Biden administration declared monkeypox a health emergency earlier this month, as have a number of cities and states, including New York. And this step should bring more resources and urgency to the response. But even if it does, why has it taken so long to ramp up on this? And and what has this experience taught us, again, about our society in general and our lives alongside viruses in particular? To pursue these questions, I am joined by someone who has also a unique voice in this conversation about viruses and pandemics, and who's been a real go-to source for a lot of people in queer communities who are looking for information on monkeypox. Joseph Osmondson is a microbiologist at New York University, and he's author of an unfortunately well-timed book called Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. Hey, Joseph, thanks for joining us tonight. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Kai. 
So your book, um, I want to call it fun, but I don't think that's the right word to describe this. Uh, the essays are poetic and often weird, and yet I'm learning about microbiology, which is not something I am often looking to do. Um, you, you, but you, you write that you've been obsessed with viruses since middle school. What, what sparked that early obsession? Well, I was born in 1983, the same year that HIV was found to be the causative agent of AIDS. Uh, and in a world where, you know, I was a little proto-queer boy uh, and AIDS seemingly was everywhere. Um, and then came this slate of hot zone-esque films and books uh, and, you know, viruses are tiny little invisible things, relatively simple things genetically, but they are quite profound and they mm. can impact our life. I mean, you know, there's nothing more profound to a life than ending it. Uh, and, you know, growing up in the shadow of HIV, uh, coming out, having my first experiences, you know, a, a broken condom, uh, the, the wait to get HIV test results back, you know, I've never not lived um, in the shadow of a virus, and I've never not had certain pleasurable things like sex in my life without considering the infectious disease that that act could bring. Yeah. I mean, so as you write, you say, quote, I'll never not be a queer person born in 1983, born into what viruses meant then. I mean, do you think that kind of intimate relationship with viruses is an inescapable part of, of our lives as queer people born after AIDS? I think it's an inescapable part of every human life. And I think that that is one of the big mm. points I make in my book. There are more viruses on planet Earth than there are stars in the sky. Viruses came long before humans on this planet. And when humans exhaust ourselves as a species, viruses will last well beyond mm. that time. They are a fact of life. It's like being mad at the ocean. Uh, it's also true that 99.999, I can't even go out far enough, percent of viruses on Earth can't affect, infect humans at all. Uh, the majority of viruses are the type of viruses that I studied in my PhD, which we call bacteriophage, which are viruses that only infect bacterial cells, right? And there they can actually be used as therapeutics. Like if you have a virus that kills a staph bacteria, well, that virus can save your life if the staph bacteria mm -hmm. is threatening it, right? Uh, we make so much meaning from viruses to the exceptions to the viral rule, to the HIV, the monkeypox, the COVID, the viruses that not only can infect us, but can make us so ill. Um, so, I, you know, it was, it, it was very funny to all the queer people I knew when uh, everyone was talking about COVID fatigue, which is a real thing. Yeah. But it's like, I've been having <laughs> HIV fatigue since my, before my first sexual encounter. For you 30 know, years. Exactly, you know. Uh, so, you know, so I, I don't, I think it's a mistake to imagine that viruses only impact one community, even if for a particular outbreak or a particular epidemic, we, certain, we see certain types of people who are more at risk. Right. This point you were making, though, about most viruses don't kill us, and we we have these, um, we tell ourselves these stories about viruses. Yeah. Why is that an important point for you to make? Like, what the, the stories we're telling ourselves about viruses, what are you getting at there? Well, so those stories can change, and we can change them, right? I argue in my book that HIV today doesn't mean what it meant in 1993 or in 2003 or even in 2013, uh, PrEP changed what it means, to, what, what HIV means. 
PrEP is medication that you can take as an HIV negative person to protect yourself uh, against seroconversion for HIV without using condoms. Uh, U equals U, the notion that someone who is HIV positive but who's controlling that infection with medication and is therefore undetectable, that they are, it is impossible for them to transmit the virus. So an HIV positive person who knows their status and is controlling the infection with drugs is the safest sex partner for HIV transmission. These are transformative to the stories that we tell ourselves and to how we view ourselves as HIV negative or HIV positive, right? If we view HIV as a, 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 a normalized, a, a mm -hmm. fact of life, and we, you know, I think we've had, we've spent so long stigmatizing folks. And in the last 10 years, I've seen a huge shift in, in my community that HIV positive people are awesome to have sex with, that there's nothing to be afraid of there. And, and so I, I just think changing our relationship to viruses in these ways that make it easier to live. I'm, I'm not so afraid of HIV anymore, both because I have better tools to prevent it and because I've, we have invented biomedicines that make the virus, it's such that the virus can be a normal part of a fully lived human life. And we can think about it differently. Um, as we turn to monkeypox here, let's just level set for folks very quickly. Uh, if the people who are not, for whatever, one reason or another, fully aware of what's going on with monkeypox. So 101, from a virological perspective, briefly, yes. what is monkeypox? What does it do? How is it transmitted? Yep. So monkeypox is an orthopox virus that is related to smallpox. It actually has a somewhat similar presentation as smallpox. When the WHO was doing this huge public health push, to eradicate smallpox from the planet, which was successful, uh, monkeypox was a big problem for that because every single monkeypox outbreak in the endemic region, and I'll go over that in a bit, the uh, teams from WHO had to go there and make sure that it wasn't smallpox. Okay, So it, it's uh, an infection that typically starts with flu-like illness and proceeds to a, a rash, and that rash can be quite painful, and it typically lasts two to four weeks, and it is spread mostly by close physical contact. So we're talking about directly touching um, a skin lesion is, is the highest risk for contact in, in, um, for transmission. In the context of this current epidemic, it is um, traveling, the virus is spreading mostly in the sexual networks of gay men um, through mostly close physical contact. So there's okay. a lot of layers to... <laughs> to um, to the stigmatization of the virus and also helping people get access to the care that they need. Right. But it is not a new virus. This is something Correct. that has been around since 1970, as I understand it. It was first described in humans in 1970. That's correct. And so then, and, and we're going to just get started on this and have to come back to it mm -hmm. after a break, but like, tell me about the beginning of this and why that beginning is important. So I actually want to tell two stories, and those two stories are HIV and monkeypox. It is around 1920 to 1940 uh, when HIV first begins transmitting from human to human. This is in the context of colonial Congo, which liberates itself in 1960. When Congo is liberated in 1960, there are zero doctors, zero engineers, zero lawyers, 
who are Congolese because the Belgian colonial rulers would not let people get educated past middle school. So it is of no surprise that HIV was spreading undetected in the context of Congo because although certainly a country with a, a medical infrastructure would recognize young people dying of very rare diseases, uh, Congo did not have that. And it did not have that for a reason. Because there was no professional class, the UN built a program to bring other Francophone professionals to Congo, largely Haitians. Wherever people travel, so to travel will travel a virus. So HIV travels to Haiti from Congo and from Haiti to New York in 1969 and from New York to queer folks all around the world. So we have colonial neglect and then homophobic neglect leading to the spread of a virus. Okay, now 1970, monkeypox, the same endemic region. Mm. Congo is still lacking biomedical infrastructure due to post-colonial neglect. They had a, a leader who was allied to the US and essentially no medical infrastructure. Uh, monkeypox comes in and out of humans from an, an animal reservoir. And as um, smallpox vaccination gets further and further away, smallpox vaccination protects against monkeypox. Smallpox is eradicated. We stop. We do not continue vaccinating to protect folks in Congo, Ghana, Nigeria yeah. from monkeypox, which is a horrible disease. And as the smallpox immunity wanes, the virus becomes more and more common. Starting around 2017 in Nigeria, there is consistent human-to-human -human spread of monkeypox. And from there, it gets into global uh, sexual networks of gay men. And we have the same patterns of neglect playing out over and over again. We will pick this back up after a break. I'm talking with Joseph Osmondson, a microbiologist at New York University and author of Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. A few weeks ago, we did an episode about the culture of gun violence in our country and why that's got to change to make any political progress on gun control. You should check it out. We covered a lot, including what's driving folks across the political spectrum to purchase guns, does it actually make you safer, or is that a myth? We received messages from you about the episode, including this one from Kevin in Connecticut. Hi, I'm a lifelong gun owner and a political mutt uh, in deep blue America. I thought the point made in the podcast that people are buying more guns based on a myth that they'll make you safer is more than a little condescending, honestly. We've seen system after system fail us since COVID, from the judicial system to law enforcement to public health. And I can share that at the start of the pandemic, two of the smartest, most liberal friends I have reached out to me. One to ask if she could borrow one of my guns if society collapsed. The answer was no. And the other asked if I could go with him to a gun show to exploit the, quote, gun show loophole, and was also a no. So these are not irrational people, but people seeing that the structures they've always trusted just may not be worthy of that trust anymore. I think that's a bigger factor than believing a myth. Thanks for that, Kevin. And thanks to all of you who are listening and talking to us. If you've got a message for us about anything you've heard, send us a voicemail. You can record yourself on your phone and email us. The address is anxiety at wnyc.org. That's anxiety at wnyc.org. All right, thanks. Talk to you soon. We have to get more information that's accurate and digestible out to people in a timely fashion. We have to do that better. But we also have to figure out how to balance 
the public health emergency with the humanity, right? And how can we learn from monkeypox and figure out how we raise the priority, how we take the humanity of men who have sex with men, gay men, same gender loving men, queer men, however they identify, and hold them in a place of comfort and safety. Black and brown gay men and gender non-conforming people need to be included in the response as um, an organizer and as leaders of um, the science. Very often individuals who are not impacted by these outbreaks, these epidemics, create strategies that may not be the most effective or the most informed by community. So I definitely think black and brown leadership is um, crucial um, as we continue to respond to monkeypox. We really appreciate how 40 uh, plus years into the HIV epidemic, the country has come around to respond to the HIV epidemic in a very different way, right? And we weren't able to say HIV or gay men, you know, in the Reagan administration. But today we are able to have that talk in that language. But we have a coordinator and Dr. Daskalakis at the White House who's coordinating the monkeypox response. So we need to continue to demonstrate that the lives of the LGBT community are valuable and they matter, right? So the way that the government has continued to respond to HIV needs to be pulled through. And it's been a slow start, but we're we're getting closer. That was Callie, Larry, and Daniel, who are Black LGBT community leaders at the forefront of the monkeypox response in in the Atlanta metro area. They were part of a listening session we held last week. We wanted to hear from this particular subset of people, experts in public health, who come to that work as people in the community most affected by monkeypox right now. And I'm joined by Joseph Osmondson, who also fits that bill. Joseph is a microbiologist microbiologist, uh, at New York University and author of Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. And as Joseph and I continue to talk, we can take your calls and questions. I'm particularly interested in hearing from you if you've had an experience with monkeypox, whether you've had the virus or you had an exposure to it and you had to try to figure out how to get tested, or even if you've had someone in your life who's had it, what's been your experience? We can also take just any questions you've got about monkeypox or or other viral outbreaks for that matter. Uh, Joseph, so before the break, you gave us this uh, very good history of of how, how, from ranging from colonialism through to through monkeypox showing up in 2017 in the United States, uh, how the choices we made uh, as a society led to, led to that, our, de- our desire, our, our refusal to care uh, mm-hmm. about um, people in Central Africa. Um, in the book, you point out that much of the national scientific infrastructure for responding for, to viral outbreaks is housed in the military, mm. um, which is something I didn't realize. Uh and that's because it's seen as a national threat. And you say that shapes our mindset on stuff like this. How so? Can can you explain that? Because that's related to what the history you were giving us before the break, break right? Yeah. And, and we see that, you know, in a way, monkeypox should have been an easy virus to contain because the United States government invested in tests, treatment, and vaccine, not for monkeypox, but for 
smallpox as a bioterrorism threat. So the real biological agent that was actually making people sick on planet Earth was a threat less worth investing in than a theoretical terrorist threat. I write in the book in an essay with my friend Patrick Nathan that war is the only place in the American imagination that we don't worry about budgets, we don't worry about the deficit, we invest. If this agent, and not smallpox, but monkeypox, had been used as a bioterrorism agent, we would have contained that sucker in a day because there would have been the political will and an enemy to fight to fight against, right? So, uh, you know, militarism is so deeply embedded in the cultural DNA of this country that even our investment in care, uh, such as inventing a brand new uh, vaccine that is hopefully very effective against monkeypox, is made through the military. Uh, the stockpile of vaccine and treatment is... Um, is run by a government agency called BARDA, right? That is, again, a, a part of the national security infrastructure. And what's remarkable to me is when 20 million doses of the Genios vaccine for monkeypox expired in a freezer in Denmark, we did not say it is in our national security uh, interest to actually use that in the place where the virus is currently spreading. Not only is it the morally and ethically correct thing to do because that human suffering matters, that that choice to use this vaccine to protect people in Congo, Nigeria, Ghana, et cetera, would have almost certainly stopped this global epidemic and, from occurring. And just to clarify, just, so we let it, the, the United States said, okay, we'll just let it expire instead That's of right. giving it away. Um, That's right. So not not only did we let it expire, but then we did not replace it. And so that is why we've had such horrible vaccine um, scarcity in the response to this epidemic. I want to pick up on something that um, you heard one of our uh, people in the listening session say just there, because uh, there's been some back and forth, forth about, you know, who is really at risk for monkeypox. Mm. And uh, it has been talked about as a thing affecting a very particular group of gay men, people who go to circuit parties. And then people said, no, 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 you got to think about it in a much, you got to talk about it in a much broader sense uh, about queer people and queer men, sexually active queer men and transgender people in general. And then there's this question of like, why are we limiting this conversation to queer people? I've had an, in, an increasingly number of particularly uh, uh, cisgender straight women ask me, hey, what do you know about this monkeypox thing? Should yep. I be worried? How do you think we should be talking about this in terms of who's at risk? It is, I mean, it's, it's brought out an intra-community debate um, amongst gay men and our social networks. Um, that, that last sort of um, surfaced around the use of PrEP, which is medicine to prevent HIV, uh, that is more effective than condom use, right? Condom use over a long period of time is not a, a purely, a, not a, not 100% effective uh, at, at preventing HIV transmission. You, you've seen this decades of emphasis on use a condom every time, and yet HIV rates are, you know, people seroconvert every year. So a lot of us viewed PrEP as a really important tool to prevent new HIV infection. And then there were people who called it a party drug and again, sort of used it to stigmatize mm -hmm. the, the 
types of, 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 of gay folk who go to circuit parties or go to saunas as sort of frivolous or unserious or as though um, those activities cannot be healthy sexual activities that give people pleasure. We have worked really hard. Uh, and by we, again, I'm so grateful for you uh, mentioning that we have experts within the community, right? We have epidemiologists, clinicians, biologists, who also are part of the social and sexual networks that are the most impacted right now, you know, who are open about not just saying sex positive things, but being sex positive mm -hmm. ourselves and believing sex is an important part of my queerness. And I want medicine to be able to intervene and make that sex possible with as low as possible risk of, of any infection. Right. So, you know, really leading from within the community and saying 90 plus percent of infections right now, are being spread through sexual contact. And so you feel like it's important to just say that and not worry about all the rest of it. Um, that it's important to just say, listen, this is this is the, the mode of transmit. Not that it can't be transmitted other That's ways, right. but this is where 90% of the data is right now. The, the, the most risky contact you can have is sexual contact. Um, what There is so much vaccine scarcity that, you know, folks who are really, really at low risk, it is, you know, it, we've, Again, we have good epidemiology on this virus because it's been in humans for so, many, for so many decades. We do not see clusters of infections being spread by a toilet seat at a school. Yeah, now, right. we need to continue to be curious and continue to have really good protocols to study the epidemiology in the context of this outbreak. But based on all the best science right now, you know, if you are not in... Uh, a queer sexual network, you are at very low risk for viral transmission. That being said, you know, there are bisexual men and there are cis straight women who have sex with bisexual men and they should probably have access to vaccine and the CDC and other governments have been moving toward more inclusive language for that type of person who might by their identity seem not at super high risk, but who are actually engaged in the behaviors and the networks where we see most of the viral spread right now. I can, we have a question on YouTube. Um, someone, uh, Jose Gradilla asks, how can you tell the difference between just a pimple mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, and, a, and, and a rash of this sort? And I will say, I'm going to come, you know, I had a freak out recently, you know, oh. where I had a zit. You know, I was convinced it was monkeypox yeah. um, and I had absolutely no idea what to do next. So let me mm -hmm. add to Jose's question. Like one, what do you, how do you know the different difference? And then two, how can I get tested? That's a great question. So it is, you know, I, I heard a doctor say this week, everyone has, it's summer. Everyone has one red bump on their body at, <laughs> I mean, all, at, at all times. I had a little like ingrown pubic hair and I like had a, had a full-on meltdown. I will also say, um, I have looked at more dick and hole pics in the last <laughs> couple of weeks um, because the scientific literature in this is publishing uh, pictures of the lesions. So there is no shortage in the media uh, of, of pictures of the lesions, and it is a good idea to know what lesions look like. They kind of are not exactly like a pimple. It typically has this sort of white capped, and they kind of leak a lot of fluid. Um, you know, but the great news here, it, it came too late, but the great news here is we have diagnostic tests that are very, very good once you have a lesion. You can't get tested in the flu-like illness, but once you have a skin lesion, 
that is the material that your doctor will collect for testing. So you can confirm if you're like, this is pretty clear a lesion, you can go to the doctor and get that confirmed. You should. You should. But and if you have a pimple you're that, worried about, that's right. That's right. Prior so you to that, you're out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, if you have a pimple and you're really worried, go see your primary care provider if you have one. If you're in New York City uh, and you don't have insurance, the sexual health clinics are the, are the spot that can take care of you. The clinicians there certainly have been seeing a lot of monkeypox cases. They can probably look at your skin and get a pretty good indication. Yeah. But again, you know, the great news is we do have tools in our toolkit immediately, unlike SARS-CoV-2 and COVID. We have those diagnostic tests. It's just a real shame they didn't get scaled yeah. in May and June like we were asking, yeah. uh, and and we let the epidemic grow to this size. Uh, another question from YouTube: uh, Someone asked, "Does my smallpox vaccine from about 1960 still offer protection from monkeypox?" That is such a good question, and the answer is maybe. Um, but if it does, not a ton. There are tons mm -hmm. and tons of recorded cases. Uh, from the endemic region in Central and West Africa of household transmission, including household transmission to people who had been vaccinated for smallpox in, the child, in their childhood. Uh, I have to add that we, the Genios vaccine that folks are actually getting right now is a great vaccine, very safe, but we don't know its measured vaccine efficacy in the context of this outbreak of this pathogen. Because smallpox was eradicated from planet Earth, all of the studies of these new vaccines are based on what's called immunobridging. So it's not actually you know, protecting you against the, the virus because the virus doesn't exist. Uh, it's actually just looking at your immune response. And again, because of global racism, we did not think to test these vaccines against monkeypox in the countries where they exist. We didn't mount clinical trials until now. Um, and so we will get good science about the true vaccine efficacy of these vaccines for this pathogen in this context, but that isn't yet settled science. That's so disturbing. Uh, <laughs> on the on the topic of vaccines, I want to play a comment and a question we heard during our listening session last week. Um, and as I said, these are with public health folks who work in public health inside Black queer communities in Metro Atlanta. And there was recently a big important conference on HIV AIDS in Montreal uh, that many of them attended, and they had a striking experience that is still on their minds. So listen to this. You know, getting a vaccine has been really hard in Georgia. Um, I actually got vaccinated when I went to the International AIDS Conference in Montreal. So compared to people not being able to get an appointment in Atlanta, or I'm from New Orleans, so I know people who haven't been able to get appointments in New Orleans or Atlanta, and they were doing walk-up vaccines just out in a tent. Um, in a gay village when I went to Montreal. So just, it was like a stark contrast in my peers and my experience trying to get vaccinated here in the U.S., especially in the South. What are the reasons why it, it's so easy to get a monkeypox vaccination in Canada where it is, you know, almost the equivalent of like hitting lottery here in the U.S.? Um, so what explains the differential in beyond just the fact that, you know, Canada has this, you know, more robust public health system. Uh, and maybe it is as simple as that, but I wonder, you know, kind of what are all the reasons why um, they have seem to have a much better kind of response um, than we do in the U S. So 
Joseph, can you start? So that was Michael, uh, who works at Prep for All, uh, and Justin Smith, who's the director of the Campaign to End AIDS uh, at Positive Impact Health Centers in Atlanta. And and can you answer Justin's questions in two parts? Um, the first, I think you've sort of gotten at why it has been such a struggle to get vaccines here in the U.S. And then why are they not a struggle in Canada? Is it just because they have a better health system than ours? Yeah, you know, this is a real question of how much vaccine did you have stockpiled, ready to go into arms in May of 2020? And Canada is the best place in the world at that. Uh, and mm. they were prepared for this crisis. And, you know, anyone of any nationality can walk up and get a vaccine. We know in the con- in the American context who has the most access to healthcare along racial, geographic, and class lines. The only data that has been published so far, to my knowledge, about the racial demographics of vaccination is from North Carolina. It came out last week. 70% of monkeypox cases were in Black people. 19% of monkeypox cases were in white people. And yet 67% of vaccinations had gone into white arms. Wow. This was predictable. Uh, We were trying to shout about this from the beginning of vaccination campaigns, that equity had to be built in from the the ground floor. And I do not expect this data uh, to be an outlier. This is what we're going to see everywhere. And now that we're going to a a one-fifth dosing regime to spread the remaining doses out, where the shot will be given intradermally in the skin where there's a stronger immune response, so you need less vaccine, the folks who have not yet gotten vaccinated will be predominantly black and brown, um, more geographically in rural areas and more working class, and they will get less. I'm talking with microbiologist Joseph Odsmanson about the ongoing monkeypox outbreak and what we are learning about ourselves from it. We'll take a break and take more of your questions. We'll be right back. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with microbiologist Joseph Osmondson about the ongoing monkeypox outbreak and what we are learning about ourselves from it. He's the author of Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. Uh, and we can take your calls and questions about it. We've got uh, maybe another 10 minutes left in this conversation. Uh, and Joseph, you, you, we have a question on YouTube that you alluded to earlier, but I just want to give you an opportunity to really come right at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody mentions that my friend who is a teacher said someone has tested positive for monkeypox in one of the high schools. She doesn't know if it was a teacher or a student, and it actually isn't a question, but it's a comment that I want to turn into a question, mm-hmm. which is just about the modes of transmission. We've, there's been a lot of talk about like schools coming back. You know, should people people be scared or concerned, or what should they be thinking about as school returns? It's such an important question, and number one, um, you know, fear is never a good place to make risk reduction plans from. You know, we want to be vigilant 
and thoughtful and careful and curious. This is a virus that spreads by extended skin to skin contact. It is not going to be like COVID in schools, or at least that is incredibly unlikely and would be, would be a major shift in the epidemiology of how this virus spreads. That doesn't mean that there aren't higher risk situations within schools. I'm thinking about football teams or wrestling teams or dance or um, drama, or uh, I was in marching band and you know you take your uniform and the <laughs> uniform manager sort of handles 200 sweaty children's like <laughs> outfits. Um, so these are places where we do need to just keep our eye, you know, parents of students or students themselves need to, to you know, I'm, I'm in a dance class, I'm touching bodies. If I see a rash, uh, monkeypox should be in the front of your mind and yeah. you should ask your clinician for a test. We do not see any evidence that, you know, most folks who are not on a wrestling team, um, you know, who are going to schools and using public bathrooms and taking public transport, that there would be a, a real call for alarm at this point. Hmm. There, it, this is not a casually transmitted virus. That's right. Uh, let's go to Mick in Hell's Kitchen. Mick, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, I guess my question was if you could discuss a bit about you know, there's so much fear in the greater queer community um, about the virus um, and about transmission. Um, and so a lot of people have just been abstinent. And it's, you know, nobody really knows at what point, like with any other sexually transmitted uh, infection that's circulating, does harm reduction become a bigger focus than just full abstinence? Um, and at what point do you think that's going to become clearer um, as we learn more or do you think that's already clear now? Thank you. Thank you, Mick. That's um, such a great question. You know, I, I think people need options um, because long-term abstinence is a, is a failed public health policy. And, and we know that a lot of us have been having different types of sex or way less sex. Um, and this has been all the way back from the beginning of our friends uh, getting sick. You know, I had a a close friend who was one of the first cases in New York. And when I saw how painful his infection was, you know, a lot of us said to ourselves, well, we need to reduce the risk for this in ways that still allow us um, to have all of the, the positive aspects of, of a healthy sex life. The real question, number one, is how effective are the vaccines going to be in practice against the sexual uh, spread of this virus or spread by sexual contact? Um, and number two, how soon can we get everyone who needs one two shots? And then if we're giving people a fifth the dose in the skin, is that just as effective? So we have real scientific questions that need to be addressed and that we need to insist that they are addressed as rapidly as possible. But this is going to be a continued conversation around what risks actually are as science sort of fills in that information. And is it your, do you feel like in the world of scientists, your monks, virologists, that there is a sense of urgency now around answering those questions? Does it feel like, oh yeah, the thing's churning, we're going to know, or... Um, are we still where we were a couple months ago? I'm 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 concerned. Uh, I'm concerned that there is a little bit of fatigue in the you know it's really the, we need federal government funding uh, and we need to set up very good rapid clinical trials. Especially this is gonna it's just gonna be a mess, right? Because if some people will have one full dose and then another fifth dose, some people will have two full doses, some people will have a fifth dose and a fifth dose at different sites. Um, so I do not see the urgency at really pulling all of those people into good um, 
clinical trials uh, to observe the the lived vaccine efficacy of, of these shots. We really, really need that. We need a strong research agenda. Uh, and that is something that is a major point of advocacy because that will take also financial investment, which might take either uh, the De Defense Production Act at the federal level or congressional funding. So there are going to be real financial needs. And I also just want to say before we end, patients have real needs. We are asking people to isolate for four to six weeks. Freelancers can't do that without potentially losing their apartment. Everyone I know who's recovered is afraid to touch people again afterward. I got to give my friend a big hug last night for the first time in over a month. And the mental health ramifications of being isolated so long, the stigma, the pain are real and people need material help. So we have huge advocacy pushes moving forward, both around research and around patient support. Another YouTube question, do you get immunity from having the virus? You do. Um, again, we don't know how long and uh, at what level, but yes, having the virus definitely gives you very strong immunity, at least for a period of years. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Clifton in Inwood. Clifton, we, uh, we're getting close on time, so if you could just quickly get your question in. Yeah, my question is if the guest thinks that the city should be making vaccines available to people on Rikers Island, given the poor sanitation conditions in close quarters and um, the fact that, you know, we yeah. saw major outbreaks of COVID in Rikers and other prisons, yeah. and yeah. that's my question. Thank you, Clifton. Yes, 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 yes. We also know that people who are in gay uh, sexual networks are also in prison. So there is a major need. Uh, the city has not done this. Uh, the LA Department of Health actually has kept some doses for people who are high, high need and who are incarcerated. Uh, it is an urgent need. It is an urgent need. Uh, it in the book, just to come back a bit to the stories we tell ourselves about viruses, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about just the metaphors we use with them. Um, and, and one big metaphor you talk about is that one thing you talk about is that we use competitive metaphors about viruses, them fighting us and each other and access to life and all of that. Mm -hmm. And you want us to find metaphors about cooperation and care. And I just want to prompt you to unpack that for me a little bit. Yeah, this came a lot from my thinking about HIV. When someone becomes HIV positive, the virus literally cuts your DNA open and inserts itself inside. So the virus becomes you. And unless you're one of the five people who have been cured through really severe cancer treatment, that virus will be a part of your molecular uh, content until you die. And so really hating the virus is kind of like hating yourself. It is you. It's a part of you. Um, when you are in, you know, the biology of viruses tells us so much about how they live and pass through us. HIV is an RNA virus that puts itself in you for life. Monkeypox is a DNA virus, but it's an acute infection. It will come, replicate, and when it is done replicating and your immune system has cleared it, you no longer have that virus in you anymore. The DNA is not there. The proteins are not there. So it lives in you for a time and then will leave as your immunity comes up. The 
you know, my friends who have been ill have felt so repulsed by their body as it grows mm. these lesions that are painful. You know, they sort of feel like their body is turning against them. I'm just curious about whether we can act, wh whether we can think about this virus is living in me for a time and then will also go away and I will actually be protected from another infection by my own body. So there's a conversation between my body and the virus and I deserve the best care, which includes T-pox, which is an antiviral that will stop the virus from talking so loudly in the time it's in my body. So, you know, viruses are horrifying. They're scary. They can literally kill us. HIV with nine genes can end a human life. We have 20,000 genes and 40 trillion cells. Um, mm. But I, I, I just ask us to be much more thoughtful about the language we use when we use language of competition or war, because again, viruses are inevitable. And then we also need to act with urgency around biomedicine to help everyone who is sick, whether it's with a virus or not, anywhere on the planet as, as a moral act, an ethical act, and also an act of self-preservation because infectious diseases show us over and over again that no body is separate from all other bodies. In the last 30 seconds we have for folks um, who are just saying, okay, now what for me? <laughs> I've got all this information. No. This thing is out there. I'm a gay man. Now what for me? Uh, what is your parting <laughs> advice? Girl, same. You know, we are we are going to learn. We are going to learn about this together. I'm still doing pretty strong risk reduction around my sexual practices, and I hope that we learn that these vaccines are incredibly effective, and that then we can insist that they are used globally to protect everyone in need of care, which is everyone. Joseph Osmondson is a microbiologist at New York University and author of Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. Thanks, Joseph. Thank you so much for having me. The United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts or at wnyc.org slash anxiety. Sound design by Jared Paul. Live engineering by Matthew Miranda. Our team also includes Emily Botin, Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Rahima Nasa, and Kusha Navadar. I am Kai Wright, and you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. That's K-A-I underscore Wright, like the brothers. Otherwise, I will talk to you here next week. Thanks for spending time tonight.